0: Joining us, uh, I'm really excited to have John Abdu on here for uh, Ask Me Anything session. Really, just a and A session that um, John has been kind enough to open himself up to, you know, anything, any question that you have about water polo, what's going on, uh, his role, uh, where he sees the sport moving forward, whatever you, whatever you want. Um, this is part of a, a series that I've started, um, and kind of piggybacking off of a bunch of other ideas that people have been doing, uh, in no way claiming that this is an an absolute original idea. But um, so John is kicking it off. Uh, today, Thursday, we have Steve Rozart talking about referee philosophy. Friday, we have Ethan D'Amato talking about counterattack. And then I'll be announcing who's coming up next week. So I, John is the high performance officer at USA Water Polo. Um, and he manages all of the the national teams, the ODP pipeline, National League, and I'm sure I'm missing out on a bunch of other things that you do. Yeah, I, yeah, I know yeah. you do a lot uh, for USA mm-hmm. Water Polo, and you've actually really built a lot of the infrastructure that I think is going to be around for a very, very long time. So uh, first, I just
1: want to say thank you for for taking the time and for everything you do. Yeah, yeah, no, no, uh, no worries, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great idea to do all this, so I'm, I'm happy to share and happy to Chat it up with everybody, as I think this is a time where we have the opportunity, more opportunities to, uh, to do stuff like this. So it's it's great that we're all doing it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, was there anything that I left out in your bio in terms of what you do for USA Water Polo?
1: No, it's all all good. Yeah, all okay. good. I think that that's a lot of stuff, and I think anybody, uh, um, I think for a lot of people too, one of one of the one of the more fun things we've done in the last few years was uh, the podcast I did with you. So if anybody really wanted to go back into that. Yeah. Um uh, having that the original podcast we recorded together was a great um uh, place to just you know um to share stories and and more personal stuff there, so I thought that was uh that was great, and I would encourage anybody to listen to that if they wanted and to. you yeah. and
0: you know what what's cool about that before we start is you mm. laid out a lot of the things that were gonna happen and now you've mm. seen mm. them come to fruition, which is really cool, mm. so I like that a lot um yeah. okay, let's yeah. start with uh the first question mm. um matthew latham uh, I'm mm. gonna ask one of his questions he's got a couple here um uh, his his question is what do you see are the big what do you feel are the biggest hurdles for growing the sport at the collegiate level nationwide d1 d2 d3 and what advice would you give college ad's that would uh maybe help
1: them consider adding men's and women's water polo uh, It's a great it's a great question um and i feel like we did talk about we've talked about this in the past and we've a lot of us have talked about this um a lot lately because i think pre-covid we saw a pretty decent amount of uh, of growth on the NCAA at the college level, right? Including where you're at now, right? College of Marin adding uh, women's water polo. Um, we saw J- a lot of JCs adding. We saw uh, D3 starting to add. We saw some D2s. I think all this like pre-COVID. So, um, you know, I don't want to see that growth stop. So And the reality is post-COVID, when we get out of this, I think the, the information is essentially the same. Right, the reason universities are going to add or maintain their water polo programs is if it benefits them in a very specific way. Right, so all of us live in this world where, and and Matt, Matt, I know Matt a long time. We know each other for a very long time, so I appreciate the question, Matt. And I know where he coaches. Matt coaches a club at Michigan State. And how sweet would it be if Michigan State had varsity water polo? Right, like home of Magic Johnson. Right, all these like this just historic university. How great would it be that Michigan State would? Have water polo and the reality is until water polo solves a problem on campus uh an athletic director is not going to just openly add the sport for the sake of growth or development or hey for water polo's sake we're going to add this sport it's just not going to happen so it would have to solve this problem so where the problems that were solved in the past with the addition of rc programs happened through title IX, right so in places in the big 10 specifically if we're starting with michigan state like michigan like indiana added programs to address Title IX discrepancies or issues on their campus. So that helps solve their problem for them. And where we've seen the growth lately with water polo has been on that D2, D3 level, which mirrors a lot of other sports. So like lacrosse, uh, volleyball, what I call comparable sports to water polo, right? Not comparing ourselves to soccer and football and basketball, right? But comparable sports like us, you know, lacrosse, volleyball, where they saw dramatic growth over the last 10 to 13 years was on the division two, II, division three level. And the reason they saw that growth, and again, to your point about original ideas, wasn't an original idea for, for me to say, let's have a division three national championship, right? So I actually took that from, from men's volleyball. And the reason that we had, uh, or we have a division three championship now, um, and we sought to promote growth at that level is to go back to the, Matt's question, is that an AD will listen when you solve a problem for them. So we're on the D2 and D3 level, uh, water polo helps is that you have tuition paying student athletes on campus that promote enrollment and promote uh uh applications being driven. Right. So enrollment driven universities are the ones who are going to be most likely to add varsity water polo. And um you know I know it's not the the, the answer we all want to hear. I'd love Michigan State, I'd love University of Texas, I would love the rest of the Big Ten to all add water polo. I wish water polo was still at the University of Maryland, you know, um where, where it was in the past. Um, Queens, where you played, all these schools, right? Uh, We would love for them to have it. Yep, there it is, dude. Uh, But we would love for that to be there, but it has to solve them. So is it solving a gender equity issue? Is it bringing people on campus? Look, best example we can give now is Austin College uh, down in Texas, right? So we have one varsity program in the entire state of Texas and Texas is, is massive to state the obvious, right? Why do we only have one varsity program there? And it's gonna start to pick up, but it'll be at schools like Austin College. And the reason why Austin College has water polo and is stoked to have water polo there is they've seen the number of applications to their school increase because of having varsity water polo. They've seen uh, the impact of their student athletes on campus paying tuition, being contributing members of, of, of the campus and they're thrilled to have it, right? But it, it brought something to them. And so, yeah. um, you know, we could talk about it for days. I know you had the same experience at Concordia, right? When Concordia started water polo in the city of Irvine just recently, um, the most recent program to add even during COVID was a school called West Westcliff University. In the city, in the city of Irvine, right? Okay, I hadn't heard very much other than driving by it every once in a while on my way to the airport. I hadn't heard of Westlake University, but why were they motivated to add varsity water polo? Is they need applications, they need people on campus, so it's a for-profit university that's there um, that made that decision. So the the hurdle is always going to be that, especially now in this new world order with budgets and you know economic crisis and where we're headed is that Waterpool's gonna have to solve a financial problem and as opposed to becoming a financial problem on campus. Yeah, that makes sense. And
0: that's very similar to what happened with College of Marin, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me ask another question here from Paul Split. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm hoping that the people who are listening or attending, please, now's your opportunity. The question that you wanna ask is open. He's here, mm-hmm. John Abdu's here, High Chief Performance Officer, like ask him mm-hmm. a question. Um. What do you see as the path for growth in different regions? Uh, does the Texas model or growth translate to other zones?
1: Yeah. Pretty um, tough question. It's a tough question. Thanks, Paul. Um, but uh, uh, I, think, I think the good news, the good news is, is that water polo is growing and the path for it growing in most areas in the country is programming that's in pools, right? So you, when you have a pool, as, as many know, right, Own, operating a pool is an expensive uh, task, right, you know, pools don't generally make money when you're the owner of a facility, right? So the more programming you get into that pool, the more likely you're closer to losing less money or, you know, in a dream scenario, break even, right, in these scenarios. So um, where water pools is growing is our pools are finding they have to have programming. It's the same, same thing going back to the college question. A lot of colleges find themselves paying the heating bill the heating bill on a pool on campus, finding that they don't have programming going on in that pool. And like, well, how can we fill that pool and actually use this, this money that we're spending to upkeep this facility to make it worth our while? And so the path to growth across the country is really accessing these facilities, right? And making sure like that, that have these facilities understand they can get something out of water polo programming. The Texas model, kind of going going back to Texas, and, and I'm sure there's some people on here from Texas, you know, on, on, the, on the webinar, you know, on the call or um, uh, I see out there is that you know, what, what happened in Texas, you have obviously one of the largest, um, one of the largest states in the union, and then you have a massive high school, uh, official high school sanctioning uh, uh, body there that wasn't sanctioning the sport. And they hadn't, they hadn't until now, which is kind of a miracle story, you know, over 20 years sanctioned an official varsity high school sport. polo is the first in 20 years, you know, to, to make that path. So the, the strategy there, you know, has been to, uh, we felt or a lot of people felt, right, that if we can tackle that high school issue, then we can become more officially recognized in the state culturally in the state of Texas. If it's not at your high school or if it's not done at the high school and everybody can kind of watch Friday Night Lights and know how important high schools are, right, in the state of Texas, we weren't really going to crack that nut, right? We weren't going to be able to crack that nut there without it being officially recognized by high school. So I do think it is a path. If we were to I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Um, but I have them with me in in our research, right? We're really looking at like six or seven states that officially have sanctioned high school water polo that's like officially recognized by the state. It's not that many. So Paul, to answer your question, yes. If the more states like Michigan is a great example, right? Michigan is a a great example. They have a lot of water polo, a lot of people playing water polo in the state of Michigan, Ohio, uh, the same, but in Michigan, it's not an official uh, high school sport in Michigan. In Missouri, I met with the Missouri board a little while back, you know, where, it's the same thing. You basically, Texas was the same thing where you have parent volunteers or really passionate coaches, or really like dedicated people who then put on the state championship. Pennsylvania yeah. is the same thing. A good friend of mine, Rudy Ruth, uh, I'll always give him credit after my years at Bucknell, grew vor- high school varsity water polo in the state of Pennsylvania from nothing to like over 60 high school programs in the state of Pennsylvania. But it's because of him that it happened, right? Him and others who like, organize the championship or do are the are the board that's what's happening in georgia it's happening everywhere it's not run by the high school so to, to really to land the plan on that question is yes if you can get the high school state high school sanctioning body to officially recognize water polo you've cleared a ton of barriers along the way and you've become relevant in kind of day-to-day life in the state and that's that's the plan going forward tux is the model and where else can we do it with other high school states
0: that's great that's a
1: really that's really important. Um,
0: okay, Ian Davidson. Uh The famous Ian Davidson, San Diego Shores. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, how do
0: we break down socioeconomic barriers to entry for our sport,
1: both for athletes and for coaches? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question, Ian. And and he probably knows because I've talked about this a lot. I talk about this a lot because I think um, on a personal level, right, and and uh, and and professional level, just moving forward is something that I want to see. Um, I want to see change in our sport. I want to see. I want to see get better. Um, we're, we're not obviously a very diverse sport, so let's just lay that out there right now. So the question wouldn't be asked uh, if, it, if we weren't, um, if we were diverse, we wouldn't be asking this question, right? So the the, the bottom line is uh, there's a few different angles to this, right? I, I think I had to answer this question on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. The first question, the first way I answer this question is that you have to look at the history of minorities and pools and access to facilities in America. Um, one of the best one of the best documentaries uh you can watch about this it relates to surfing but it's called whitewash narrated by, by ben harper so it's kind of nice on the ears while you're watching it but i would recommend watching uh the documentary whitewash and it talks about the diversity in surfing and why there's a lack of diversity in surfing in general um well less than one hour documentary really interesting to watch right um but it also details the history of the lack of access to pools that people of color had in the United States for generations. And this is not, I'm not talking about a hundred years ago. I'm not talking about 200 years ago, I'm talking about still in the sixties, still talking about in the seventies, still talking about now where people didn't have access to beaches back then, let alone the local community pool. So there's a stigma that's associated with getting in the pool with a lot of people of color in this country, right? There's a stigma that's associated with it. Like we're not allowed to swim, right? There's people I talk to, well, that swimming's not for us, right? Like swimming's not for me. Right. So there's this massive barrier in the beginning that just says the pool is not for us. And that was institutional. That's institutional, fundamental racism and discrimination that has brought us to this point where sports like swimming and water polo are, are not going to be diverse. So that's the first thing you have to tackle. Right. Time magazine had a great article. I referenced this a lot, too, like seven years ago that stated that 50 percent of Americans don't, can't swim, period. So 50 percent of American citizens can't swim. Right? So you want to talk about the growth of our sport, right? If people can't swim, they can't play water polo, right? So um, of that 50% of people who cannot swim, there's a disproportionate amount of that 50% are people of color, right? So within the 50% that can't swim, disproportionate amount are people of color, right? So that the first and foremost, you have to, we have to break, and that's why you see so many organizations that are out there that are trying not to find diversity in water polo, but trying to find diversity in aquatics, right? Can you make pools accessible, to 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 minority communities into areas where they weren't accessible in the past, right? So I think it's a loaded question, Ian, and one that I'm passionate about. I don't want to keep talking about, but that's level one. You have to beat the institution. That's starting to happen. You start chipping away at those things, pools become more accessible. Okay, let's say we can solve that, um, although it's a tall order, right? Then the second thing then I would say that limits the diversity in, in our in water polo is is the barriers of cost, right? And that's goes back to the barriers of all youth sports, there's a model in America today where sports are no longer the responsibility of school districts and communities. Sports have become privatized. And it's how many people on this webinar it's how many people uh, that, uh, that are around in our sport have, have made a profit or made a living off of water polo, right? It's because sports have become privatized. But go back to when we were growing up, right? The club scene was not big when we were 15, 16 years old, Steve, right? It just wasn't, it was different, it was small. So if you could dedicate yourself to doing that, you can go play club. And this is not a water polo problem that I'm addressing. I'm addressing this as youth sports in general. I'm a big fan of what they're do, what, the, what they studying at the uh, Aspen Institute uh, of Sport in Colorado and guys like Tom Fari, right, who put a lot of time and, and effort into researching that. Now, the burden to learn how to swim for a family, the burden to, to teach a kid how to play basketball, the burden for a family to play soccer uh, is on them. The financial burden is on the family to find a way to play that sport. Whereas when we were growing up, we did our sports sampling in school. I learned how to play basketball at school. I learned how to play soccer at school. I didn't know about water polo until my high school. I, to, I walked by the pool in the high school and said, oh, there's high school water polo, let me go try it. Right. And now the whole system has changed. So like we are we have to fight ways, the answer to the question, because this is a whole other hour and two hours we could talk about diversity in water polo. The answer to the question is, how do we fight those systemic issues? The fact that the facility history and the access to facilities is one, and then two, how do, we, how do we fight what's happening in youth sports today in terms of the privatization of it? And that actually goes back, and oh, it's all related. This goes back to my question, to the question from Paul Split, which is, that's why you need high schools to have water polo, because yeah. that's where the cheapest place somebody can access water polo. The least expensive place for someone to play water polo is at their high school, because they can go, there's a coach, there's a teacher, there's a pool on campus they can play. That's the least, there's low, lowest barrier of entry there.
0: So. Yeah. And there's the lowest amount of friction, community college is the same way. I have to, now that I'm kind of in the mix with that. So um, that was a great question. And I know that we need to address that as a community a lot more. Um, Okay, Dominic Kirby, where do you see the growth of water polo in diversity standpoint? So I think we've sort of addressed that. Yeah. How can we get more competitiveness in more diverse regions? I feel like that was addressed. I feel like that was addressed. Would you agree?
1: yeah yeah okay i'm mean, i could talk about it for days but yeah yeah a lot to it but let's let's get through that yeah. yeah we'll come back to the we'll
0: come back to it um uh Alyssa hawkins i hope i'm pronouncing that right um given that your possession position requires you to wear a lot of hats what does success look like to you uh is it more about adding more water schools adding more water polo is it about having more athletes like ashley johnson from florida max irving as an athlete of color uh
1: etc so what what how do you define success with your position yeah well, that's a good question um I, I i actually think that that question of what how do you define success is one that's really um uh, it's really important to ask all, our, all all of ourselves right all of us because it's very easy for all of us in coaching positions and might in a gm position like myself or something like that to say that my uh success is based on results right um and i'll be that's the easiest out for me to say is that the re- Based on results, that's how I view success, and that would be. But that's not how I view success in my position, and I would challenge all of you to say that that shouldn't be how you value or that's how how you value success in your positions, um, because it can't be results based. It can't just be about winning and losing, because winning and losing has so much to do with so many other factors that are out of our control. So I think if I could have any impact on the sport at all and call it you know quote unquote success, it would be in the growth. It'd be in the growth side. I just want to see water polo across the country i want to see water polo in every pool that's out there i don't i want to want to go to a pool and only see lane lines and and backstroke flags you know i want to see goals i want to see goals in those pools and it's really partnering and and working with everybody on trying to make sure that water polo is as as, uh, widely uh, available across the country as possible around the world as possible to be fair because uh diverse when we talk about diversity another good point about diversity is that we're not very diverse worldwide we're not a diverse sport in America, but we're not a diverse sport internationally either, right? There's a great map that I always put up on, the, uh, on slides and presentations too that had in the, in, from two, the year 2000 to the year 2016, all gold medal winning men's water polo players were born in a 100 mile radius. In a 100 mile radius, over 16 years, every gold medalist in the men's water polo Olympics was born in that radio. That's not, so if you're, if you're the international Olympic committee, if you're the IOC, if you're anybody out there, they're looking at water polo going like, so you play this sport in what was once one country and is now broken up into four, right? So that's, but that's where your country is really, that's where your sports really blossoming. Not very good. Why isn't water polo bigger in Africa? Why isn't water polo bigger in Asia? You know, why isn't water polo bigger in, in, in a lot of parts of the world, even within Europe, it's isolated in specific pockets of Europe. I'm broadly based in Europe, South America. All these places we're talking about, I think, if to answer the question briefly, would be, um, would be growth and then access, of course, the diversity yeah. side and access. It's just something we have to address and we have to change. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, Corey Murphy wants to throw it back way back here. Which fundamentals did Ted Newland focus on and stress the most to his players? This is a, actually a really, really good question. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in
1: knowing the answer to this one, too. Well, you know, you know some of it, but um, you you, you were there. Uh, uh, Coach Newland. rest in peace, you know, um, wasn't a tactical um, water polo genius, right? He just wasn't. And uh, it just wasn't his thing. Um, You know, he, 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 you know, water polo in this tactical age has developed a lot lately. So what he stressed the most was fundamentals. And so, and, and even those fundamentals, he wasn't the most like technical guy that was there. Uh, so I would say number one with a bullet was strength and conditioning. So he was just somebody who swam and lifted weights a lot, you know? And so everybody that came out of, everybody that came out of UCI, I feel like, uh, under coach Newland really had to love the weight room, right? They were just like loved. We were in the weight room five days a week. And inevitably, as I said, on the podcast, boy, that's also got me hurt. and has got me injured. is like trying to keep up in the weight room. My body wasn't ready. the weight room when i got to college right and uh, we were lifting five days a week olympic lifting cleans jerks you know like just straight up press yeah bench press just the old old school like not this body weight very advanced stuff that you're doing now we're all doing now right where it's this enlightened way of lifting weights it was no just get as much weight as you can on the rack right and 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 make it happen um but that was the edge he focused a lot on on the legs and on strength and conditioning we were always stronger always tougher you know uh than everyone i think that's what what coach what what coach was about um and and he also put a lot of time into passing i mean one of the the memories um good or bad that i'll always take away because i wasn't again i wasn't the best player to ever walk through that program and then i get there um and he didn't like the way i was passing and and um teammates who can remember the story but there was a time he screamed my name and you know mispronouncing it of course and you know all all all, uh all hell all hell breaking loose where he forced me and another guy to go in a corner, get into the gutter, point my elbow at the gutter, right? And then pass the ball into the gutter, you know, for the rest of practice. And there's like an hour and a half left in practice, you know, because my elbow is out here, you know, it's too far out. You're not throwing your elbow, you're not pointing your elbow where you're passing, I'm doing. So you got to go there. And so that's how much he was just focused on fundamentals. He, just, he didn't care that you were having fun in practice. You know, if you weren't doing it right, he was going to make you go over and, uh, and do a lot. So really to answer that question, it was, it was strength and conditioning. It was toughness, mental toughness, and then it was a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, a base fundamental body positioning right, that made you work. And that's why he was able to take guys like Jeff Powers, guys like Ryan Bailey, who, who weren't really polished when they got there, right? And then turn them into some of the best players in the world. Would you consider Dan Klatt
0: also kind of unpolished at the time? He's very athletic, but
1: yeah, coming from yeah. an area that maybe not as high level as Orange County. He did. Yeah. He was, I mean, coming from Fresno, but Dan, I, I, I would say that about Dan, but if, and I would say this if he was listening now or he said, he's, he's a gifted athlete, right? I mean, the dude this yeah, fast. Yeah. Right. So Very guys athletic. like guys like him and like our age of generation of people that we played with and were around yeah. like guys like Dan Klatt, Omar Aimer, they came in as just really good swimmers. And then you could build off of that fundamental, right? Like maybe they weren't great water polo players, but they, they could take that swimming and that athleticism and moving. And then just incredible human beings with a lot of drive and like, yeah. you know so you know uh determination to get through that and that's how he got to that to that point but uh yeah. it doesn't hurt to be really fast and six four you know and yeah. <laughs> uh and be athletic and you know water polo can come and that's the best thing about our sport when you find good athletes they tend to do well in our sport we've you and i've yeah. had this conversation we've all had this conversation we really want the sport to grow we gotta find athletes not necessarily yeah. water polo players yeah um
0: a a question from utah sean stringham yeah. uh it's kind of worded kind of a long worded but you know Mm -hmm. there is an important base to this question Uh, Mm -hmm. in utah we have worked for the past two years to build coach consensus and create a separate club season in the spring Mm -hmm. for all ages 10 and under to 18 under men and women leading Mm -hmm. up into zone championships and JOs in july Mm -hmm. then we would have high school as fall sport men and women similar to norcal Mm -hmm. which would lead into winter swim we are creating pathways to work with the Utah High School Athletic Association to push for sanctioning as an emerging sport. Does that annual schedule fall in line with the rest of the country? And what would you lead with as we address
1: the Utah High School Athletic Association to get traction? Uh, It's a great question, but Sean, you're doing a great job. First and foremost, you're doing a great job. And that sounds like an unbelievable plan. One of the, uh, Unfortunate things about our sport that uh, that I talk about sometimes um, uh, with people—we don't have a national season, so I can't answer the, to the the inability for me to answer the question to say that yes, the, that timing or that sequence aligns with a national calendar is one of the more unfortunate things about our sport that it would be awesome to fix. Right? Um, it'd be much e- it'd be much easier for all of us to plan some of these things if we could say water polo is a fall sport water polo is a spring sport water polo is a summer sport whatever it is right we don't have a season for water polo and that's troubling for us in the states um and that's going to take a lot of luck and a lot of time to to fix because we don't even have that fixed here in california right um and uh it would be great if we had one high school season in california but the cif doesn't even have one high school season in california uh which is why there's been lags on state championships and and different things like that 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 could have could be better so um, I mean, Sean, I think you guys are doing a great job. I would lead with all that. It's great to be able to answer all the questions. You're already ahead, meaning that you're already answering all the questions that you can anticipate from an administrator at the at the, at the state level, right? Is they're going to want to know not just when your competitive season is, they're going want to know when you're training. They want to know when your downtime is. They want to know what you guys are doing in the summer. So if you're going to be able to explain to a sport administrator at the state level that this is when the sport starts in August or September, whenever school starts for you guys generally in the state. And then take them all the way through the year back to the start of the next school year, and let them know what the kids are doing along the way, and the flexibility, and the impact on their academic schedules, and the impact on other sport, their ability to participate in other sports, and things like that. Then, um, then you're answering those questions right. But uh, I'll add that to the wish list for everyone to to pray for here. It was a national season for water polo. That would be yeah. amazing. Yeah. Interesting that in Utah swimming's in the winter, you know, like
0: whereas in here and in Northern California it's in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's, that's sort of an interesting twist. Okay. JJ Addison, mm-hmm. uh, Indiana, mm-hmm. lots of great ideas on the Slack channel for a US professional league. Is oh, yeah. that a goal for USA water polo? If so, how important is it? Uh, if it, if it is important,
1: what's the timeline? Yeah. Yeah. JJ, JJ is another, another old good friend, uh, from, uh, out there coaching at Brown university. I'm sorry, Brown. Minnesota. I, I, but, uh, sorry.
0: I'm yeah, my mistake yeah. Brown.
1: All good. All good. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, right, JJ. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, good to hear from you, JJ. Yeah, I've been following that Slack channel, too, which, by the way, kudos to you, Steve, for starting that. I think it's started some good conversation. Right. Having um, uh, my colleague Ryan Kunane over at U.S. waterpolo started a Slack channel for us uh, recently, too, you know, when, uh, when he came on board. But Having Slack is a I'm not getting paid by them, but it's a great app. Right. But it's a good it's a good plug to have. This whole Slack. very, stuff. very cool place to organize your conversations. Yeah. And so that's been great to organize. And so JJ's referencing, if you guys are not on the Slack channel right already, but these conversations that are happening on Steve's off the deck Slack channel right now um, for the pro leagues. Look, I think, I think this is a loaded question. There's so much to this, right. And this is a, it's been fun to be a part of that conversation on Slack because it's way more complicated than people think. Right. So, um so let's start with, uh let's start with us water polo and what their role should be. Right. Is your question JJ. Right. So one, uh, we started National League, which was kind of an extension of Premier League, right? Like the Premier League, if everybody remembers, happened and then stopped at around, um, you know, 2000, uh, 2005, you know, or so. Uh, uh, we lost Premier League, and then we went a 10-year gap. I took the job, and to Steve's point, you know, started some stuff, and then we brought National League back in uh, in 2014 when I started at U.S. Water Polo. Um, the purpose of Premier League, the purpose of National League, was to provide some sort of semi-professional level of play but that was also ncaa compliant uh for athletes to keep playing so it kind of filled the gap in the calendar which is that january let's call it winter spring right january to may time frame uh for men's college athletes that weren't developing during that time women are playing their collegiate season and uh uh and that was the, the the purpose of premier league and national league uh during that time and still is and still is now, there's barriers to that because of it. And we talked about this in Slack channel. There's barriers because of NCAA rules, right, of how much you can do. There's also barriers as to, from my perspective. Now I'm just wearing my water polo hat. I'm not wearing my U.S. water polo hat right now. There's barriers to what you think that an NGB, a national governing body, can do for a professional league. So the, perp, the, the USA water polo is a national governing body, NGB, which is the same as all their sports have that. Their purpose and their goal is to grow the sport and to – and to and to make sure that we have national teams competing at the highest levels in the Olympics or world championships or whatever, right? So a professional league in the states uh, is as a, as it comes from USA Water Polo. In my opinion, it should happen outside of USA Water Polo, and USA Water Polo should support it, right? It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't come from within. It should come without, and then and then the two can two can collaborate, right? Because the burden, but that's not what na- national league is is as good as it gets for us right now, and that's not to knock my own thing. I'm not being self-deprecating here, right? Like it's something that we have, but it's always going to have barriers, right? Because we're a nonprofit organization, right? right? That's trying to grow the sport and sponsor the Olympic teams, which is a whole other conversation we haven't even started yet. Right. And that's costly, right. To make sure that we're taking care of athletes and paying athletes and paying the travel and, you know, everything that goes with supporting a national team program. Right. Um, and then I would also say for a lot of, for everybody listening, right, JJ, like how many NGBs do you know? There's the reason I brought it up are also sponsoring professional leagues, right? So is USA, USA swimming is not necessarily, you know, USA lacrosse, USA wrestling, right? USA field hockey. Is the professional league coming from them? Did USA soccer start the major, major league soccer? No, right? Major league soccer start on its own. And then I would say, but it's really important. I would think having some sort of league for men and women is really important, right? And now, because all this has actually been a great sequence of questions so that I can go back to the last question why isn't there like a a national league for women right i get that question a lot Or like i would love to have a high level women's high performance league in america part of it is because there's no calendar that can align where you can put it in there at the very least what national league and premier league did right was in that time frame of january to may when men's college season wasn't happening college college men could do something right so then you would say for the women why can't you do it in the fall right and try to get all the fall uh women to do there but then the southern california high school girls are still going all the way through february right and you can't you can't grab them so there's never really been this ability to have a calendar that aligns for all us that's why uh, in the slack channel we said this i think if there's going to be a professional league it needs to be in the summer and there needs if there's going to be a professional, league, it has to be in the summer and this is also to my, my argument to fina and the international water polo right it's like if you look at the international schedule Everything ba- ba- bashes up on each other. World League Super Final, LEN, LEN Championships, you know, all these calendars. Calendar is by far the biggest barrier to growth of our sport domestically and internationally. Until then, there's like an aligned calendar where our professional league can run in the summer. And that runs at the exact same time as a professional league that's happening in Europe. And there can be crossovers and there can be Champions League where the winners can all play each other and there can be some collaboration then we're there, but that needs to happen on its own. And then the last thing I'll say about that, because again, every one of these questions can be a whole other talk on its own, right? Is is take a hard look at other professional leagues for small sports like us in America. And again, the, the hard reality that we are a small sport, right? But find me the successful model of an Olympic small sport that is functioning, high functioning professional league in America, and let's follow that model. Because there have been a lot, MLS took, 20 years for it to be profitable when was ml when did the mls major league soccer become profitable the WNBA still not very profitable right it falls under the and if, they're supported yeah they're supported, supported by, the by the nba yeah so where's the model that works how many lacrosse leagues have there been that have failed how many rugby leagues have summed up and failed right so if we're going to find something we all want it to be sustainable and i don't want it to be because some donor came in and said hey here's a league it went great for a couple years the donor went away and now it's gone right so i think there's a lot of ideas that we're kicking around together as a community and i think i think we'll come up with the right thing but it's gonna it's gonna hopefully that answers your question yeah no great answer yeah.
0: um i'm sorry jj again for saying the wrong school brown university yeah. for jj yeah. um okay steven loomis uh how would you like to see coaches improve themselves with this downtime what can coaches be doing better um, and has USA waterpolo thought about a credentialing system like the Azevedos talk about? Yeah. Kind of kind of a <laughs> lot of questions there. You could choose to answer all of them or just
1: <laughs> or just one of them. you. Yeah, yeah. All good. Um uh let's start. Well, what can coaches be doing right now? Well, coaches are being doing right now is is what we're doing here, right? The fact that we have 30 30 coaches on here, right? And we're talking and um there I've said this a few times lately. I, I do feel like there's been like a renaissance in coach education since COVID happened, right? Since shelter at home and all these things happened, we've had this, this kind of awakening of coach education um, being a priority for everybody. So what people are doing right now, well, I think where what people are doing right now is the best thing they could possibly do is just dive in and read as much as they possibly can, engage with other coaches as much as they can. Um, we've all complained over the years that I think we've been a closed off sport where people, um, coaches tend to do something and then they feel like they own the secret to that in the sport. Uh, and I feel like that's starting to be break, breaking down during this time. So I think finding other coaches to talk to, finding other coaches to collaborate with, finding other coaches to make uh, to make those uh, connections with is the best best possible thing you can do. Um, we just posted on the USA Water, and they segue into Coach Education, but uh, we just posted on the Coach Education um, uh, uh, Twitter channel, uh, a great talk from the Daily Stoic uh, from Buzz Williams, um, one of the best basketball coaches in college, right? Uh, talking about how he's using his time during COVID. I would, everyone should listen to that, right? Listen to what he's talked about. And the, the highlights of that are he's spending every day reading. He's spending, he reads one book a week. He's journaling every day, right? He's gonna be connecting with his staff on a daily basis, right? He's like taking advantage of the time that wasn't there for us before. And I hope and I pray that when we get out of this, we all realize how much time we wasted and burned in our coaching careers uh, while we were just trying to go hundred miles an hour and never took the time to really, think about the things that we're doing and connect with other people and connect with other coaches and really strategize and come up with a plan and plan your season and really be thoughtful. How many of us, Loomis, have, how many times have you coached a club practice without a practice plan? How many times you show up to the pool deck and just wing it because you know water polo enough, you know, to get it done, right? Because we know enough water polo. All right, we're going to do some legs. We'll swim, we'll sprint, we'll shoot, we'll pass. Okay, cool. It's a good practice. And you feel good about that practice. But how much better would you feel if you actually plan that practice in some sort of sequence? Right? If it was connected to the plan for the week, if it was connected for the plan for the season, if it was part of a periodization that took you from point A to point B that had you peaking at a certain point. And sometimes we don't have the, frankly, don't have the time to do all that, right? So do you have time now during this kind of COVID time to really think about and plan ahead and really be thoughtful in the things that you're doing? Um, and then in terms of coach certification, I think we're doing a lot. Um, you know, Ian Davidson was on this, asked a question earlier um ian davidson drew clute they're doing they're doing a lot of good stuff for us right now uh for for coach education and there's a myriad of resources that are out there for coaches um it doesn't equate to having a coach certification right like you're a gold coach or a level five level four level three whatever you want at this point yet um but i do think that's something that we're, we're discussing for the future i mean i think right now what's happening is that you're building a base of knowledge and of resources that it's out there completely so i would highly recommend for everybody and this is a shameless plug, but to look into the work that we've done with Drew and Ian and with a lot of the, those, those, uh, the work that's out there. Um, I would go to the USA Water Pool mobile coaching app, have a ton of resources and talks and talk, uh, uh lectures and uh, drills and videos. Every ODP video that we filmed in my first couple years on the job is on there, and these are filmed with Maggie, with Kylie Newshell, with you know, with Manny Musselman, with all kinds of the, the best athletes I think that have the best movements in the water, right? If you want to learn how to. Uh, be a better shot blocker. Then watch the shot blocking video that we filmed with our women's national team of the, some of the best athletes in the world, if not the best athletes that ever played our game. Right, and their ability to move in the water. That's out there for them now. Um, so it's on the coaching app. we have a coaching manual that we put together. We have coach Academy. So last year, Loomis, we started um, a coach academy that Ian Davidson led at the holiday camp uh, in uh, Colorado Springs, where you come, you can you you participate in the holiday camp as a coach, but you're also in the classroom every day getting, getting knocked, you know, getting the curriculum and getting knocked out. And then at the end, we handed a certificate over to every coach that, that, uh, that participated in the holiday camp coach Academy. And they could take that to the athletic directors and say, look, I put in X amount of hours of uh, uh, professional development, right? So high schools are now paying, helping pay for support for some of this, helping support travel, and then also helping your uh, professional development hours that are needed to keep your job at your level. And I think that's the next, the next step you'll see from from us is how can all those things tie together the coach academy in colorado springs you know the coaching app the videos you know uh coaching odp you know can you tie all these things these coaching clinics that we're doing and we had uh over 80 coaches in chicago uh over 85 coaches i feel in chicago in february it was the last trip the last airplane i was on i was in chicago running a coaching clinic with dan lason right, with with drew uh with coach dovisich uh and we were out there and, and then we had 85 coaches there can you get something for that right can those count towards some units. So they, they the long answer to your question is yes, and explore all these myriad of resources that are out there for you now that maybe you were too busy to look at before. Awesome.
0: Okay. I'm gonna move
1: on. Um, we're 40 minutes in. I'm
0: gonna we got some a lot of questions here. So I'm gonna kind of rapid fire some of these. Brian yeah. Snyder. Yeah. Uh do, do you see more colleges like Sonoma State who have a program or maybe considering adding a program, dropping water polo in the future due to yeah. COVID or any
1: other reason? Yeah um hey Brian uh I'm uh I hope not uh and I don't think so um you know um one of the things that we're doing and again all the I'm happy to stay on as long as you want Steve by the way because this is okay I love I love happening I love talking about this and it's all good it's all good material it's all good every one of these questions is its own hour right so Brian why are, why did Sonoma State drop they were probably going to drop before COVID happened and COVID fast forwarded that decision Right. That's my that's my feeling, because that decision happened within a week of, of us being in shelter at home. It was like almost immediately make that decision. So you look at a place like Sonoma, you look at like Urbana University, the whole university collapsed. Uh, you know, remember the whole university closed down and they had just committed to adding water polos varsity sport. there. Why did that happen? Well, probably because that university goes back to the college question I asked earlier wasn't on good standing in the first place. Why did they add water polo in the first place? Why did Urbana add water polo? Because they were struggling as a university economically. And they're thinking, how do I get more people to, uh, how do I get more people to apply to the university? How do we get more tuition paying people, uh, tuition uh, paying students? So I think I'm less concerned about programs dropping and more concerned about what college is going to look like in America in the next three to five years, right? Because some of these universities may or may not be there. And frankly, they're not going to drop water polo anytime soon because water polo may be the only thing that they, Austin College isn't dropping water polo anytime soon, because that's what's one of the things that's helping keeping them afloat. It's keeping paying paying students on campus uh, and, and people there. So that's, so I'm, 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 I'm hopeful I could, the longer answer to that question some other time would be uh, in my other role as executive director of the College Coach Association. Uh, we're coming up with as many austerity um, uh, initiatives that we can take to keep college water pool alive, right? So it's much easier for a college program to go to their AD right now and say, we're gonna work off of half of the budget we did last year than before you cut my program. So we're trying to be proactive. We're encouraging colleges to go to their ADs right now and say, please don't cut us. This is how we're gonna operate on a cheaper level because we can survive a budget cut. We can survive one less coach for a season. We can survive one less college scholarship for the season, but you can't survive getting cut and eliminated, right? Like that's, yeah. that's, that's what we're trying to avoid. So. Cause they're
0: not gonna fill the pool up with concrete. The pool's nope.
1: still going to be there no matter what. So,
0: um, exactly. okay. I'm going to, Ian, I see you have a couple questions. I, I'm going to get mm. back to you, Ian. I'm going to ask a question from somebody else first. Mm. Um, an anonymous person put, you've seen a lot of teams the last couple of months online. What's the best quarantine home workout you've seen? Best virtual team activity, best shared video practice idea.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, if you could yeah. answer, maybe you don't. Yeah. I'll be quick. You know, I'll be quick. I mean, there, Honestly, anything that engages the athlete is good, right? So uh, you know me, I'm an educator. My my wife is a professor uh, at Chapman. She's an educator too. So we we read all the education journals every day. Most school districts are struggling to get 40% of their students engaged in online distant learning for their school district, right? So whatever you can, if you're getting better than those percentages, you're crushing it, you know? So anything that you can do to get people to come out, the better the best i I mean the stuff that's out there is fantastic i i i can't uh i'm actually again this renaissance has been awesome right i think what six eight is doing is awesome i think those workouts they're doing are great i think what cap seven is doing is awesome you know these in-home workouts i think what all of our national team athletes are doing hosting their workouts and and what they're doing is, is great i think bridge athletics has put out um some good stuff too but none of it works if people aren't engaged right none of it works if people aren't engaged so you gotta find a way to engage them. And I would ask your athletes what they want as opposed to uh, telling them what they're gonna get, right? And so really to get that participation out there, really listen to what your athletes want, listen to what they need, and then respond with that. And if you can get over 50% of them there, you should give yourself a pat on the back. And that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah,
0: um, okay, I'm gonna go to Austin Ringheim. Uh, do you see any changes in our game given some of the new COVID guidelines what, will, what ways can we show the water polo, that water polo will be successful in the new normal? Yeah. I. E. Social distancing.
1: That's a great question, Austin. Um, uh, and Austin was out in Austin College at one point too. Yeah, yeah. So, and now and, uh, head coach at MIT, so good to see you Austin. Uh, I, like, real short answer to that question is the best thing that we can do as a sport right now in the COVID time is show how flexible and how malleable we are, right? The, the sports that are not gonna survive are the ones that are really rigid, really stubborn, Right, and say this is the way it has to be moving forward. Right, So for example, if in your state or in your region, and I'm saying this to the NCAA, the same thing, if we have to move our season from one season to the other, then do it, right? If the NCAA has to move the men's season from the fall to the spring, and we can show the NCAA that we're willing to make sacrifices and willing to move to adjust our timing to make it happen, we're gonna, we're gonna win favor with the NCAA. We're gonna look at it like those water polo coaches and that water polo is a sport, they know how to get their stuff together. They know how to act, they know how to mobilize in terms of prices, make it happen. So wherever you guys are at, in wherever you were in your states and your regions and your zones, wherever you're at, if you could show that you can be flexible and malleable in these situations and, and, and adaptable, then that's the best thing that we can do. But if we come and say, well, water polo has always been this way and water polo has always been played at this time and it has to happen, then people are looking and say, look, you're not really adjusting to the times here, right? We have to be adaptable and we have to be flexible. Um, I don't think the game is going to change, you know, rules and and things like that. We just, But we have to be flexible to say that, hey, this is not the season. You play another season. We have to be flexible and say, if we can't have fans in the stands, okay, we have to make the sacrifice and parents can't watch this weekend and we're just going to have to play because those are the rules, you know. So how flexible can you be to make sure that water polo survives as opposed to trying to push it forward?
0: Awesome. Okay, I'm going to skip down uh, to Nestor Nunez, Orange Lutheran. What's up, Nestor? Uh, how important is it to develop home homegrown players for professional team, uh, or would a draft work best, or a hybrid
1: of the two similar to MLS? Yeah, I think I think it's a hybrid. Anything, any, the answer to everything is always going to be in the middle, right? There's never an absolute answer to anything, right? So um, I think we're we're developing a lot of water players in America, but I think. One of the best things we could do if, if we can get us pro league off the ground is to bring people in from other parts of the world to help supplement and 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 combine that in. I mean, we look the MLS took it's the MLS is, is is pretty old, guys, right? I mean, for a lot of us, so the first season those of us who we in Southern California for the LA Galaxy was 1996, right? 1996. So this it's been a long time for them to get to the point where they're at now, right? And that's soccer, which is the most popular sport in the world. That's not our baseline. Our baseline is not comparing ourselves to the most popular sport in the world. Our, our baseline is can we compare ourselves to other niche uh, Olympic sports that are out there? But yeah, we need a hybrid of, of players that can come. And the reason I bring up MLS again is guys like you know Beckham and uh, Ibrahimovic or you know other players that can come in you know play in the league later in their careers. If we can get um, you know players from Europe to come for the last couple of years of their uh, career, they would be fantastic, right? And we can continue yep. to build off that.
0: Yeah, um, great. Okay, so. Uh, more of a personal question here from Ian Davidson. Uh, you know, you've talked a lot about young coaches venturing out. You know, taking college jobs in in different areas of the country. Um, you know, uh, you know, could you speak on personal struggles that you went through and how you think it made you better as a human not not necessarily a coach, but just the how the experience changed
1: you personally. Yeah, that's a good question, Ian. Look, I think. uh, I really do believe that risks are rewarded professionally. I think when you take professional risks, they're they're rewarded, right? Even if you fail, you've taken a risk and you've learned something about yourself and you're a more courageous person and you're you're a more brave person because of the risk that you took, you know? And I think that's, if you want to talk about being a better human or a better person because of it, I think just taking a massive risk in your life professionally, personally, will always be um something that uh is is rewarded so what what ian's referring to is actually the pool that i have as my virtual background right now this is bucknell university central pennsylvania middle of nowhere right as a teacher at burbank high school at the time um i was teaching ap psych and sociology classes social science classes and um the head coach there john ziegler at the time said hey why don't you I met him at a summer camp at the Naval Academy. I was doing summer camps with coach Schofield at the Navy, at the Naval Academy. And he said, Hey, I'm going to start having a budget for an assistant coach. And that just goes to show you the growth of water college water polo since now and then. Right. I mean, people were just getting stipends for assistant coaches. Now we're talking about second assistant coaches on staffs and two or three coaches and it's insane. Um, and this is 2004 or something, um, about, and, uh, um, I would say that's why I encourage everybody to do that. So I'm in Burbank, California. There's Hollywood, California, right? This is the Hollywood area, right, where you're at. And to go to central Pennsylvania, middle of nowhere, forget water polo, right? But just the cultural jump of living in a city to living in a rural place where there's nothing but horse and buggy, you know, in town and there's Amish everywhere. And there's just this university, right, right, right where it's at. That risk that I took at that point in my life, has it, it changed everything, not just water polo, but I, again, the, my ability to have confidence. I'm not the most confident guy in the world, um, believe, believe it or not, right? Like um, I didn't have a lot of uh, um, ability to do this public speaking. All those things are still kind of coming to me. But having to take that like risk, you know, and doing something super scary and just frightening to do, like I can't encourage that enough. And especially at a young age, you know, do it. And it really, it, it troubles me when I see coaches who are saying, I, I, I don't want to go outside of California. I don't want to take that job. But the personal growth that you get out of that is insane. You know, I, I've told the story a, a few times. I was living by myself, right? No friends, no family, no girlfriend, nothing. You know, when I got there, um, and it was honestly it's the best thing I ever did, and it was the hardest thing I ever did. And usually, the hardest things you have to do are the better things. And so, uh, Ian, for everybody out there, I and mean, I think the best thing you can do is get out of your comfort zone. How many times have you told your players, "Hey, when you get out of your comfort zone, that's when you're going to get better." well, how about you? When are you going to get out of your comfort zone and get better? And I was wildly uncomfortable living by myself and as a, as a person that looks like me in the middle of Pennsylvania. Right. And particularly with water polo, right out there, there is wildly uncomfortable. And uh, it was awesome because I wouldn't be anywhere, anything. It started a personal, not coaching. It started a personal path of me being able to like stand up on my own two feet that made all the difference.
0: Um, okay. Have you, this another anonymous person. Um, have you been working with schools in Texas at all to help develop the community more now that they are sanctioned a sanctioned water polo sport?
1: Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, me personally, you know, we have a staff that works on that stuff, right? Um, at USA Water Polo, and we have uh, everyone out in Texas who's working on this as well. Um, and I think as this develops, I mean, a lot of this news came out right before COVID, right? So it's like the news happened. And then um, see, the news happened the, about Texas adding water polo and then we all went into lockdown, you know? So a lot of the stuff that we're, we're hoping to enact is coming up and that goes back to the coach education question. So a lot of those resources that we're talking about for coaching, uh, the coaching app, the coaching manual, we wrote that coaching manual when Drew uh, and Ian and myself and others really got an idea of having a, a, an official coaching manual for water polo, the first digital coaching manual for water polo the idea was actually Texas. That was my ask, ask these guys. The first time I, I told them, Hey, we really got to dive into this. It was because, Hey, Texas is going to add at some point here in a couple of years, water polo. What can I hand the assistant swim coach? That's now the head varsity water polo coach in their hand or on their computer, they can click links on and be able to, to do that. So that coaching manual that we have online that everyone, that I encourage everyone to go see was made with a specific idea that People in Texas, coaches in Texas will have that in a brand new program, be able to take that and start from nothing and build build their way up. So we've tried to make this as easy as possible for people to take something and start from just a basic level of coaching, right? If you're coming from another sport, but learn water polo and, and build it from there. So that's not a high performance coaching manual. That is a Texas high school coaching manual that is now nationalized, you know, they can be used anywhere. Okay. Um...
0: Do you think the league should adopt the U.S. major sports model, closely mimic the European club model, or a hybrid of the two? How do you anticipate involving interscholastic athletics for developing players? Yeah,
1: yeah, we should do another. Let's do a panel next time on on the pro league. You know, like because that (laughs) was like that's like ten. I think you know.
0: I think uh, you know that was one of the things I put in the Slack channel when I first started the professional conversation. Is I'd like to do uh, something like that and. Basically, throw my idea out there with the budget and everything. I'd love to have you there and maybe two or three other coaches and just hash it out. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are thinking about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the answer is always going to be a hybrid. You know, to to answer the question specifically, it's got to be a hybrid. There's no answer, so you can't have one level of funding to say like, "Well, we're going to get all the funding from here." Right? That's not going to work. You're going to have to have multiple layers of funding uh, to 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 make it work, and then it has to be sustainable funding. The money has to come in every year. And then to say, well, we only want this type of player. It's not going to be that one type of player. It's going to be all kinds of types of players, right? So we're going to have to have a hybrid player. We're going to have to be able to allow – this is why National League exists now because it fits into the NCAA model of what's acceptable. Because if you took the college players out of National League, we'd have four teams. We have a, okay, that's okay. We have a league with four teams. If you take the college, the college people out there, we'd have nothing. There would be no women's collegiate cup the women's senior nationals in the summer, if you weren't, if it wasn't NCAA compliant, how do you get the college uh, male and female athletes to participate? You just can't. So there has to be a way to, to answer all those questions there's no magic bullet uh, into that, you know? So um, lots of ideas there, but yeah, let's, let's chop that up another time, you know, because there's yeah. so much I, I think one of the things that I
0: was thinking about when you were talking about this before in terms of the national governing body running a professional sports league, you know, it, that's why Jerry Colangelo runs USA Basketball. He, although he's part, was part of a professional team, I think the Phoenix Suns, I don't know if he still owns it. He was completely separate when it came to USA Basketball. And I Mm -hmm. think the fan base gets that confused all the Mm -hmm. time. They they just Mm -hmm. figure it's just another event. Why can't you do that? But it does Mm -hmm. have to be something completely separate. And I'm sure there's nonprofit rules and regulations that you guys have to follow just as a national governing body. So it has to be something separate and it's very, very complicated. Um, okay. Uh, Ian Davidson, what are a few things you wish coaches would take more time to focus on with athletes under the age
1: of 15? That's, that's easy. Um, and I think you did a talk on it recently, Ian is take the, when you have water polo time, take the goggles off the kids, right? Like when you have water polo time, water polo specific time, you can have swim specific time, right? There's, great clubs out there that have figured out that model. Like, okay, we have these few times that we swim, 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 but then once it's water polo time, you don't need goggles to play water polo. Right. And so the best thing you can do with athletes under 15 is teach them how to move in the water efficiently for our sport. And that's what we're missing. Right. At the end of the day, we're missing athletes at the highest of levels that are really fluid and really, and really mobile. I say this all the time about our women's team. Why is our women's team so successful is you have a lot of incredibly athletic women who can move well in the water and and to be blunt and to be direct our women's pipeline teams who haven't had the greatest results right um internationally underneath them that same athleticism that same mobility in the water if you're asking someone who who's in charge of the pipeline and looking down is i need our clubs and we need our people out there who are really developing the athletes before they come to usa right they're being developed at the clubs being developed at their high schools being developed at the age group level under 15 they need more mobility. They need more athleticism in the water, right? And that doesn't come from goggles face down in the water. It comes from head up swimming. It comes from getting over their hips. It becomes from going from horizontal to vertical in the most efficient way. And what our women's senior team is doing right now is as is, is an incredible, they just have incredible mobility. And I haven't seen that mobility on a large scale across the board for all our athletes under 15. We get athletes at 15 who, I should say we get players at 15. Uh, and I've challenged our, our pipeline coaches and, and everyone out there to scour the clubs for an athlete. I don't care if they don't know how to throw the ball yet, but can they move in the water? Well, we can always teach somebody to throw the ball later, but if they can't move in the water, well, we're, we're dead, you know, in the beginning. So what we need to all focus on collectively is the ability to have technical skills and have athleticism in the water uh, at a young age. So before 15, I would do a lot of mobility and a, and a lot of clubs are doing it out there. And that's where you, why some, a few a lot of athletes come from specific few places at times right Is like you there's places that really teach the ability to move in the water but if you only have four hours a week of water polo club time or water polo instruction time and half of that is used for swimming then you've done your athletes a disservice to be better in the sport so yeah well john uh
0: there's no more questions in the chat um yeah. this has been pretty uh Amazing, actually, I didn't I didn't know how it was all going to work out in terms of, hmm. you know, everything and all the different questions and all the different angles. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, to do this. Actually, well, another question here. Do yeah, you sure. do you mind if I ask you another one here? I'm, I'm, um. Okay, how I'm do you think? It. How do you think the uh, 10 to 12 year old modified rules help or hinder the development of the mobile athletes
1: you are looking for the clubs to develop? Yeah. Um, uh they 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 heard everything nothing is the answer is always gonna be in the middle right there's not going to be yes and there's not gonna be no uh the modified rules for the for the 10s and 12s from a while back right were uh essentially adopted from rules that were already happening in europe and in other places where they are developing mobile athletes so the goal was you know that these rules would help you know develop more mobile athletes based on this now when you're uh, uh when you're stagnant you know, and with the the mandatory pressing and with, um, you know, I think the, the adjustment that teams were making, we weren't getting more mobile, we were getting more stagnant. So there's, I think some of the interpretation or some of the adaptation by coaches with those rules didn't necessarily achieve the goal that you're talking about, but some, but the intent of it was to promote that. And I think it still does. One of my favorite parts of those modified rules is the sprinting to the box and sprinting back for six on five. And I've gotten many uh, we'll call them arguments with people about the value of that, right? But the value of that is because the second the athlete hears the whistle on an exclusion, they have to then react immediately to the whistle, sprint as fast as they can to the box, get under, and then sprint back. And so you're teaching them to be mobile and active and reaction and to have quick reactions in the water, as opposed to, you know, stopping, slowing down, then going underwater, water, touching the bottom, doing breaststroke underwater until they get to the box. We're teaching them to react right away. And we're also treat, uh, uh, We're also uh, teaching them to react quickly on defense. So the the person who was kicked out, fine, you're kicked out. But because they're only going to go there and back, i got to be in shot blocking position right away. How many, why is it that as coaches, we all know there's a lot of very, very experienced coaches on here. What's the best, what's the highest percentage way to score a six on five? You attack the quick, right? Why is attacking the quick the most uh, highest percentage uh, six on five approach? because people don't have their hands up yet. Well, why can't we teach our 10, 11 and 12 year olds, right? That the second you hear the whistle, I gotta get in a shot blocking position right away, right? I gotta be mobile and agile enough to be in shot blocking position immediately. Um, and then we could talk about, again, this is a whole other hour of development rules that could help but th- to be brief on it too. The other thing, I think the next development, the next stage of uh, really helping our athletes become mobile and active and athletic at this age group, at the, at the age group you're talking about 10s and 12s is to have more small sided ball. We need smaller course. We need four on four. We need five on five. We need more touches for the ball, right? And that this is, I, I can't be more passionate about this. We have to have smaller courses and smaller sided attacks, uh, games for 10s and 12s. Because water polo is one of the worst things in the world you wanna do is, I don't know if we have them, but if you have any 10 and under film from JOs or 12 and under film from JOs or something like that, go back and watch one of those games and then watch how many of those kids touch the water in in the game how many kids go actually get in the game i've been attending under games at junior olympics where i see half the bench stay on the bench right until uh through the last four games of junior olympics and that's terrible and not only do they not play then when they get in there how many times do they touch the ball track how many times an 11 year old kid or a nine-year-old girl touches the ball in a 10 and under game track it we have right i can tell you it's horrendous there's a nine-year-old girl can get in, the, in a game in a 10 and under jo game and touch the ball twice or touch the ball never, right? So if you can go four on four and give them a chance to touch the ball, imagine now the the the, the psychological experience of motivating factor of having a kid stay in water polo where they touch the ball, pass, shoot, score, get involved, as opposed to, I went to JOS, I sat the bench for five games, but in the four games I played, I touched the ball twice each time I was in there. And when I touched it, I was on the deep wing and I just touched it on the deep wing and then I gave it back to the best player up top so they can shoot, you know? It's just not it's not what, what we do so we need small sided ball and we need small sided games and we need to get them active and then again you think this is some original idea that i you know came down from the mountains and and came with it it's not we're <laughs> we are no different than other sports so why did soccer develop right soccer four on four soccer small sided ball right allowing kids to touch it we're no different than any other team sports so can we allow kids to do that right what's the best way we develop basketball three on three right when i played high school basketball all we did was our coach would make us go outside. You guys go play two on two. You guys play two. What are you doing in the spring? Two on two, three on three. Right? How many times can you touch the ball? How many times can you shoot? Because I get more touches and more more action in that way. So I, I can't I can't stress enough for our development that yes, those rules modifications were done to help the development of athletes. Um, and those and those can be there, but it'd be better if we scratched that and just went four on four and played in a small small sided ball and let them play water polo and, and teach us lessons.
0: Yeah, almost like beach polo. Um okay. Uh Paul's gonna ask one more question. Um, but before I ask it, he the the question is any book recommendations, but before I ask it, I want to do a little plug for that water polo history book that a couple of you have been ordering. Uh it's on the on the off the deck podcast website. And if you go on the Slack channel and it is under water polo history, Stephen Loomis actually is the one who um uh made me aware of it a couple of people have ordered it um so if you want to order just like a history of water polo pictures like 50 amazing stories you could just find it on the slack channel and, and click on the link i don't really have anything to do with it i just offered to put it on the website so i could help them sell a couple copies so any book recommendations that you have um for coaches
1: yeah uh a lot but i'll 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 keep it to what is most fresh fresh and on you could mind.
0: always you could always add the books to the yeah. channel you know i think yeah. that'd
1: be great yeah let's do that let's do that and you know what drew and Ian and i did this once too for holiday camp those who went to the coaching academy at holiday camp we made a page of all our favorite books cool. i don't even mind i can copy and paste that and throw it on the channel you know but like yeah. we put like a a, a, a um, an image of all these books that are out there but if you yeah. have time right now I'll, I'll plug two very quickly that i yeah. that i uh, enjoyed a lot uh one i already referenced the, da- the daily stoics there's a guy named ryan holiday He has a series of books that are are phenomenal and they've made their way through all the pro sports. So Ryan Holiday wrote uh, two books that have almost every professional team that I've heard of or at least high achieving uh, professional sports teams have read. And that's um, uh, Ego is the Enemy and The Obstacle is the Way. If you could read one of those two books or both of them at this time, he has some others that are, he has Stillness is the Key came out, but his name is Ryan Holiday. He runs the Daily Stoic. Um, It's rooted in stoicism, but Ego is the Enemy, Obstacle is the Way. Those are fantastic. Uh, and then the other book, um, sorry, I guess three, the other book that I would say that I think has been really powerful over the last uh, couple of years that I read uh, was a book called The Captain's Class by Sam Walker. Uh, and I'm talking about this for coaching specifically. So The Captain's Class by Sam Walker, I had a chance to, to hear him speak um, uh, somewhere. Um, but he talks about leadership and he talks about captains and the people who we should be picking as captains as opposed to the people that we tend to pick as captains Mm -hmm. or who the he talks a lot about people who are the charismatic connectors on a team you know the, the the player that you have that connects all the other players in the team that they all want to play for not necessarily the leader that's the flashiest or most vocal or any of those things but it's called the captain's class by sam walker it's it's very powerful very and very easy by the way all three books that i read are, are very easy to read for a simpleton like myself. So you're never going to hear me, you know, uh, recommend a book that's like 800 pages and, yeah. you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend things that someone with uh, my level of intelligence can digest easily, which hopefully that means more of you can as well. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay.
0: Well, yeah. John, man, this is, this is really, really cool. I really appreciate yeah. And And I, I hope people give you the credit you deserve and I'm not trying to, you know, blow smoke here, but I hope people give you the credit you deserve for being as open as you are, because I think someone in your position could very easily hide, not answer questions like this, have, you know, not be as open-minded, listening yeah. to other people. Um So thank you so much for your time
1: and for your knowledge. And, uh, you know, I hope we could do it again. Yeah, honestly, my, my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for the kind words. And honestly, anytime, I mean, this is, this has been great. Like we have time on our, hands, you know, during this COVID period and and I'm happy to just be a part of uh any conversation or anything anybody's doing. And uh it's exciting stuff and thank you for uh, creating a platform for all of us to do this. It's really, really important. You've created a place for all of us to be together, which is yeah. uh uh which is sorely needed. So thank you. And uh I appreciate everybody out there. And if there's anything I could ever do to help, again nothing to hide, everything to share. And uh give us your give us road. your
0: social media give us your social media handles so that people can reach
1: out. Yeah. Uh same, coach abdu pretty much everywhere coach abdu on twitter and coach abdu on instagram whatever um you know feel free to reach out I'm on the slide channels and uh um yeah excited and thank you guys for some good questions those are those are valuable questions you know um that, that for us to talk about. But yeah anytime guys you know happy to be here